So we are continuing the series that we started last week titled One Hit Wonders. And this, uh, the premise of this series is that we are just studying four different individual books of the Bible. And all four of these books, Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude, are all one-chapter books. So they're short, but just as we've seen last week, they are packed full of all kinds of information. And again, they are in Scripture for a reason, and yet because they're short, and in fact most of them are one page or less, um, it's easy just to skip over them, to not even realize they're there. And, and so we are, we're not skipping over them. We're going to pay attention to them through this series. Um, and because, after all, they are included in Scripture for a reason. Right? They are there for a reason, and so we're, we're looking at those. Uh, and, like, and as we do that, like I said, last week we started with the book of Philemon, and we learned about how uh, we learned in the power of redemption and how, you know, God, um, nobody's ever too far away from God to come back to him, to be redeemed, right? That God can redeem it, right? And, and ultimately, the, the center of Philemon is about salvation, that that starts, that redemption plan starts with you receiving Christ as your Savior. And, and we saw that last week, again, how, uh, how that power of redemption and reconciliation can be unleashed into our lives. And now this week, we are moving on to uh, the next one-chapter book, which is 2 John. Uh, and so as we do that, again, you can, you can open with me up to 2 John. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open up with me. Uh, if you're here with us in person and you don't have your own Bible, there are Bibles provided for you in the seats that you're welcome to use. And you'll see here that uh, the, the page numbers there are included on the outline where you can find this in those Bibles. Uh, if you're with us online, hopefully you can grab your Bible next to you or uh, you know, pull it up on your phone or whatever, and, and uh, we can, as we're going to read again the entire book of 2 John, it's 13 verses, uh, so we're going to read that. But before we do that, um, I just want to lay a little foundation here before we read it and realize that we are reading um, a little different uh, book here than what we're typically used to, especially in the New Testament, because um, 2 John, it is a letter, just like a lot of the New Testament is, just like last week we read Philemon is a letter. However, this is, uh, is a Johannine writing. Now, that's the scholarly term for who wrote it. It's John. Okay, now, John wrote um, a few different books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John. Okay, and then he wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he also wrote Revelation, the, very, the last book of, of the New Testament. And so that is all of the books that John wrote. And, but I bring this up to say is that John writes... Uh, distinctively different than Paul writes. And again, Pauline writing, which is the scholarly term for description of, of all the books that Paul wrote, again, Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament, a, a lot from, from, um, from Romans all the way through Hebrews is all, all the books that, that Paul wrote. And, and those are the most familiar ones. We're familiar with Paul and with his writing and with his style. And so when we read somebody other than Paul, we need to realize that their style is different. Right? And, and, and John's style of writing, again, is very unique. In fact, when you see the four Gospels, we see that we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are all known as the Synoptic Gospels because they're all written in a very similar style. And then John is very different. Again, we've, we spent this last summer studying through the Gospel of John and seeing all of those chapter by chapter in those stories. And if you remember, we stopped in that series right at, at 
uh, John 17, which is when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's arrested. Now, after this series, when we finish one, uh, this One Hit Wonders, we're going to pick John back up uh, because that's going to be our Easter series is we're going to follow then in John 18 and, and follow the story through Easter, uh, and we will complete the Gospel of John uh, here this spring as we work our way to Easter. But as we do that, we just we realize that, again, John writes in a very different way. Again, Paul, in his writing, writes in, with very linear logic. He, he's, Paul, as we know, right, a strong personality. He's very black and white. He just says, this is the way it is, and he just lays it out in a very logical, linear way. John doesn't. Right? John is a lot more of an emotional writer. And John, which is one of the reasons why his gospel is so good, is because he gives us the emotional side of who Jesus was. Hey, but also, John typically writes in circular logic, right? meaning he brings up a topic and he, and he brings up a few things and, and, and talks about and, and through the logic of how those are circularly connected. These concepts all play into each other. And, and we're going to see that today when we read 2 John. Again, like I said, John is a lot more emotional and a lot more eloquent in his writing, where Paul tends to be more blunt and to the point. And so as we open up again to 2 John today, um, just think this in mind, right, as we read it, that again, we're not reading Paul, we are reading John and his different style. Uh, and again, because of John's writing style and because of his uh, typical circular logic, all of John's writings are, are closely intertwined. And so to, to really fully get the, the full understanding of this letter, 2 John, and we're going to read 3 John next week, but as we get into this, this mode, right, of reading John's writing, just, you know, realize that to really understand 2 John, you have to know the gospel pretty well and, and even know uh, 1 John pretty well to, to really get 2 John. So again, if you're looking forward in your outline, you probably realize most of the scriptures on there are not from Second John. They're from the gospel and from First John because we need to understand all of that to get what he's talking about in Second John. Okay, that's enough warnings. Now we're going to read the text, right? Second John, uh, starting at verse one, it says, this letter is from John the elder. I'm writing to the chosen lady and to her children whom I love in the truth and does every, and as does everyone else who knows the truth because the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace, which come from God the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, will continue to be with us, who live in truth and love. How, how happy I was to meet some of your children and find them living according to the truth, just as the Father commanded. I'm writing to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. This is not a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning. Love means doing what God has commanded us, and he has commanded us to love one another, just as you heard from the beginning. I say this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked so hard to achieve. Be diligent so that you receive your full reward. Anyone who wanders away from this teaching has no relationship with God. But anyone who remains in the teaching of Christ has a relationship with both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. I have much more to say to you, but I don't want to do it with paper and ink, for I 
Hope to visit you soon and talk with you face to face, and then our joy will be complete. Greetings from the children of your sister, chosen by God. So as we read, again, this entire book of 2 John, um, we first see this premise of, uh, of who the letter is addressed to. They, again, it is uh, addressed to the chosen lady, lady and her children. And now this is a, an allegory, right? And again, some, some scholars want to believe it is written to a specific lady. Um, but however, as you see, just the context of the letter is that he is using this biblical illustration of, of the church as the bride of Christ, as the chosen lady and to her children. So he is writing to this church, right? And her children is everyone who has believed in Christ be through this church. And, and you see there at the end, again, his, his final greeting, it says, it comes from your sister chosen by God. And, and again, there he's saying, this, is, this basically is coming from your sister church. Because it's not just about, again, about any one individual church, but about God's church, right? The bride of Christ. And so we see here, again, the, this, as John alludes to, the, the, the relationships between different churches, Right? And even the importance of that. And as we see this, this overarching illustration, right, of the church and, and all it has reached is, is who John is writing to here. But then we, we find the, the, what the ultimate focus of the letter is. And again, why did he write? Well, the, the, the ultimate focus of 2 John is how we define Jesus as Christ. Again, how do we define Jesus? How do we view Jesus? This, this is a question, again, that's come up throughout the New Testament. In fact, even in the Gospels, Jesus literally asked his disciples, who, who do you say I am? Right? Who does everybody else think I am? Right? Again, they throw out different ideas, and then you know, Peter, and, and as we see all the different personalities of the disciples, Peter blurts out, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and again, Jesus commends that conclusion. But yet we see here, as, as Paul addresses that, or not Paul, as John addresses this church and says, but guess what? There are people that don't define Jesus in the right way. And that this is very important. In fact, this is the most central thing we have to get right, church, is that we define Jesus correctly. And this, again, is, is the, the ultimate focus of the letter is is. Do you view Jesus the way that he needs to be viewed? In fact, if you look at all of the world's religions, not, not just Christianity, but all of the world's religions, is it, it all comes out, so what separates them is how do they view Jesus. Right? And in fact, Christianity is the only world religion that defines Jesus as divine. And so, again, that's what sets it apart from every other world religion. Now, every world religion has some opinion of Jesus, right? But only Christianity says that he was 100% divine, as Messiah, as Christ. And that, again, is the core truth that not just our faith is built upon, but that we stand for, that he was 100% God and 100% human. And the only way that can be accomplished, again, is if with divine intervention. 
Right now, with that said, we see now how does John define Christ? Like I said, to, as he throws this out again, he doesn't nearly define Christ in this letter because he's already done it in his previous writings. Hey, we start here in, in the Gospel of John, the, the very opening chapter of the Gospel. And, and again, the Gospel is, is, is the story of who Jesus is in, in John 1.14. He says, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Again, John defines Jesus as the Word, right? As the truth, as, as the, the one and only Son sent from the Father, right? As a part of the Holy Trinity. That, that, that again, we serve a God, right? That, that didn't just stay distant, but a God that that entered into our world, right? He became among us. And what was his motivation? Well, his motivation for doing that was because he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Right? We also see later in John's gospel, and one of the most famous verses of his gospel in John 14, 6, and again, what the most bold statement that Jesus ever made right, in his entire life, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now again, this statement, this is honestly one of my favorite verses in all scripture, because you look at this statement that Jesus makes about himself, and about his identity, and about his character, and realize that either Jesus was 100% accurate in his claim, or he was a raving lunatic. There is no gray area in that statement, is there? So either we believe that he was the Christ, right, or we have to discount everything else that he ever said or taught. Right, now, obviously, we're here today because we do believe that what he said was 100% true. Right, now, now, with that said, right, again, how do we define Christ? Now, again, Jesus and John has, has defined him as the Messiah, and now we see, again, if we declare him as the Messiah, then, then what's the result in our life? Right? And that is what he does address in 2 John. In 2 John 1, verses 2 through 3, he says, Because the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. Again, who's the truth? Jesus. Right? The truth is is in us and will be with us forever. And therefore, grace and mercy and peace, which come from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, will continue with us who live in truth and love. Right? As you read that, and, and this, this, this address at the beginning of the letter that John makes here in 2 John, is that he's telling you that if you define Jesus as the Christ, Right? And if he, if he is everything he claims to be, and if he is, and you've received him as your savior, then he's living in you and he will be with you forever. And by the way, that will change everything. Right? Because look at our world. Right? Does grace, mercy, peace, truth, and love, does that define our world today? No. In fact, that's the opposite of what we see in our world, isn't it? Which just comes to the fact, right, that again, Jesus came to save the world, to, to, to save the world from everything that, it's, that it is to bring into our lives. Grace and mercy and peace and truth and love, which is everything that God is. 
But as, again, but it all comes down to the fact that we have to define Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. Because the truth is Jesus. Right? Love manifested is Jesus. Right? And, and as we see that, again, it, it's so very important that we define Jesus correctly. Right? With that said, though we see here at the end of this verse, right, is, is if this is true, if, if Jesus is in your life, if you've received him as your Savior, and he he's, he's indwells you through the Holy Spirit, and he's with you, and they'll never leave you, which was the last thing that Jesus said to the disciples before he left this earth, by the way. Right? And he stands true to that promise. And if that's all true, he says, then, then you will live in truth and love. Right, which means that when all that's true within you, then it will also affect the way you live. It will affect your outward actions. It will affect the way you interact with different people. It'll, be, it'll affect not just what you do on a Sunday morning, but it will affect every moment of your life. Hey, because the reality, right, if that's the only difference in your life than somebody who doesn't have Jesus is the fact that they sleep in on Sunday and you don't, right, then they're never going to want to know about Jesus. Right? If, but if Jesus is a part of your life every moment, right, and you are living that truth and love of who he is, right, then your life will naturally look different than the world. Right? And you face things differently, and, and you will be set apart. Now, as we look at that, um, we see, so how do, I, how do I live truth and love? Like, but how does that happen? Well, that's what the rest of the letter is about. Right? It's, it's telling this church about ways to continue to live truth and love. But before we even can answer that question, we must first establish that, again, one of the core teachings of John and of his silent, all of his writings is the fact that truth and love are deeply connected. Okay, that truth and love are deeply connected. You cannot have one without the other. And this is, again, Paul can, or I keep saying Paul because I always preach from Paul. No, we're looking at John, right? That John always connects them. Okay, and as we've seen, already seen in his writing, as we even just read 2 John, as we even these few verses from his gospel, we, we see that the truth and love are, are two very common core topics for John in all of his writings. Okay, and, and we see, though, again, as he describes it, that, that love is not just an emotion, right? To, to John, love is a verb. That love is, is love when it's lived out, when it put action to it. Right? That, again, love is done. It's not something that you feel. Hey, and we, that starts with, with, again, what God did, right? He said what God, God showed his love by sending his son, right? When the word became flesh. That love is truth put into action. Again, that the character of who God is is truth. He puts that truth in action and the result is love. They are deeply connected. Again, we, we see this in, in verse 6. And he says, love means doing what God has commanded us. And he's commanded us to love one another just as you heard from the beginning. Right? Basically, I mean, he's telling us, you can infer, right, from this 
verse that, that love is nothing if, if you're not doing something. Right? That love is actions. It means doing what God commanded us. I encourage you to underline or circle, put stars around that word doing. Right? Because that's how John defines love. In fact, Jesus, in his teachings, he made the same point. Again, going back to the Gospel of John, okay, the words of Jesus in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, so now I am giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How will the world know that we follow Jesus? By how we love. Again, that's, that's not John's idea. That's, those are the words of Jesus himself. Right? How, how will we be set apart from the world? Well, it's by how we love. And how do we love? Well, it's by doing something, right? It's, it's by, by putting action behind your belief. Right? We follow the example of what God did for us. Right? Love lived out is what shows the world what truth is. Because remember, what's truth? Jesus. Jesus defines truth. Again, love is lived out through the, the whole of the Trinity, of, of who God is, is love. It's a part of his character, just like truth is a part of his character. And, and again, with that truth in action is played out in love. We, we see in in 1 John, in, in this first letter that leads into second, in 1 John 4, 7, that love is commanded by the Father. In 1 John 3, 16, we see how love gets manifested by Jesus as the Messiah. In 1 John 4, 13 through 15, that love is made available through the life in the Spirit. In fact, the more that you love, the more it teaches you about the truth. And the more you learn about the truth, the more that you're motivated to live that truth out in love. And this is a perfect example of the circular logic that John teaches in. That love and truth both feed each other. And the more truth you get, the more it motivates you to love. And the more that you're loved, right, the more it points out the truth. And, and they, they, they stay. They feed each other, and, and again, this is the circular logic of Johannine teachings and writings. And the results, when we see this played out, is when we start to see God's kingdom take new ground. Right? When truth and love are, are both being lived out by his church is when, when we see God's kingdom expand, when we see people find God for the first time, when we see you know, those that have even walked with God for a long time move forward in their faith, right, and, and grow in their faith, and, and that, that God's kingdom gets established in their own hearts and in his world. And, and again, when we think about that and, and see how does that play out in reality, right, is that's when we see, again, a church be healthy, right, when it's defined by who Jesus is and, and that the circular logic plays its way out, and, and it just leads to very wise decisions and and where churches thrive the longer that they, 
they grow, and the more they grow, the more they thrive, right? It's, the, again, this circular logic that it, it all feeds itself. And when you think about this, again, we can just look at our own church at Oregon Trail and to see how, again, there, there have been um, many leaders and, and godly people that have come before a lot of us. And the fact of just even the, the health and growth of Oregon Trail today is, is, is there because we are reaping the benefits of truth and love being lived out decades before us. And when we look back at the history of Oregon Trail, and again, we're so thankful of the godly, wise decisions that were made decades ago that we are now reaping the benefits of. And it is establishing our mission to be able to continue to go forward and to reach new people and expand what God's doing in this community. So say, if you, again, if you're here with us today and you, you have been here longer than me, and there's, again, I'm looking around the room, there's several of you that are here. Thank you. Again, if you're with us online and you've been here longer than I, thank you. Thank you for living out truth and love. Right? And seeing that happen because now we get to bear that fruit. And now, the, I want the same to be true of, of, you know, of my season of in leadership in this church, is that when we get there, and when, I, when God moves me on, and wherever it is, and what happens is that those, whoever takes the, the baton from me and from you, that they can look back and be like, thank you, Lord, for the things that Oregon Trail did then. Right? And, and that, again, we can look back and say, thank you for, Lord, for your church. Right? That, that truth and love have been lived out. And that people have found Jesus and lived Jesus. And so as we, we see these, these things play out and, and, and lived out, right? this letter then, as we've established this, this foundation in these first six verses, right? and then then John gets to the real purpose of the letter in verse 7. And in verse 7, again, he, he gives a very stern warning. And, and this letter comes with a stern warning. Again, he builds all of this up, right? Living out truth and love and all of this to, to the warning in verse 7. And the warning is beware of Antichrist. Now, as, as he gives this in verse 7, okay, again, this is verse 7. I think it's, it's, he says, I say this because many deceivers have gone out into the world and they deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body, and such a person is, is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, again, I told you that his writing is very different than Paul, and he gets there in a very different way. But yet, again, there are times, right, when John makes some very blunt statements. Okay, and that one's pretty clear. Okay, now, as he makes this statement here in verse 7, right, he, he establishes, right, that, that there are deceivers that are in opposition to the truth. That when we look at our world, again, there are, there are people, there are organizations, there are, are things in this world that are, are going against who Christ is. And he says, you need to be aware of that. Right? Be, be, be not just aware of it, but be ready for it. Because here, Paul, I keep saying Paul, here, John, again, does not, is not addressing one person, is he? But he's this, and notice again, your, your fill-in is plural. It's antichrists. Because he is establishing the fact, right, that, that this is not a specific person he's addressing. He's addressing a category of people. Okay, he is, a, he is addressing a strategy of the enemy. 
right? That there's not just one antichrist you got to look out for. There, there's anybody who is against what Christ is for is an antichrist. Right, saying that if you, again, the de- he, in fact, he defines an antichrist in 1 John. Okay, in 1 John 2, 15 through 25. And also in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 in 1 John. Okay, is that he, again, describes the same thing and where he first establishes this definition of what an antichrist is. Right? And although 1 John, in that letter, he was describing something that had already happened in that church. Right, that hey, these antichrists had already made their way in and they'd already caused some huge division within a church, the church that first John was written to. Now, here in Second John, as he addresses it, right, is that he seems to be giving it as a warning to, to d- deter from this ever happening in this church. He's saying, So beware, right? That there are these deceivers are out there. And and know that, that it is it is a strategy of the enemy. And be ready. Don't let it happen in your church. And then he gives two action steps in the following verses, starting 8 and 9. Two action steps of now how do you live out truth and love? Okay, how, how do you do that? What does that look like in your life? What does that practically look like for not just this church, but for anybody who follows Jesus, who defines Jesus as Christ and has received him as their Savior? Now, what does it look like going forward? He gives us two action steps. The first one comes in verses 8 and 9. And the first action step is to don't lose what you have. Don't lose what you have. Stay focused on what really matters. And again, what's the premise of the letter, right? What, what really matters? Who is Jesus? that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, that you have received him in your life, you've accepted him as your savior, and, and that you continue to learn who he is and, and what he stands for and what it, what it means you know, to follow Jesus. Don't lose that. Do not lose that. Again, in fact, he, he says in the verse 8, he says, you know, do not lose what you have worked so hard to achieve. What have you worked so hard to achieve? Well, understanding who Jesus is. And what's the result of understanding who Jesus is? Your salvation. You get right? Understanding that I need a savior. That I can't save myself. Right? That, that truth, who's Jesus in action, means that God sent his son to this earth. Right? That the word became flesh. That he lived a sinless life. That he died on a cross. He rose again on the third day. And so that I can be saved. Don't lose that, church. Don't lose that. Right? And in fact, he says, he says, stay this so that you will get your full reward. Well, what's the full reward? Well, our full reward is when our earthly journey ends, right? And we're standing face to face with Jesus, and we receive our full reward, which is eternity in heaven with Christ. Again, it's our salvation. Right? And we start out that, and he says, and don't lose it. Right? Continue to move towards that. Be more like Christ every day. Continue in that journey. Right? Living for eternity in God's unhindered presence in heaven is our full reward. But he says, don't wander from it. Right? And as we read these verses, right, it, it stands to reason that, right, that you can't wander from something that you've never had. So again, it starts with salvation. 
And I'll say the same thing I said last week. If you are here today or you're watching online and you've never prayed and accepted Jesus as your Savior, start there. Pray and accept him as your Savior. Right? And then once you have it, don't wander from it. In fact, when we see, we see that, again, that, that what are, we're going to lose, if we wander, we lose from that relationship with Jesus. Right? Jesus defines what salvation is, right, in John 17, 3. And he says, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. Again, the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and he defines what salvation is. Right? And he defines it in relational terms. What is salvation? To know God. And to know Jesus, who was sent by God. And if we, the reality, right, by according to this definition by Jesus, is that if you don't have a relationship, you don't have salvation. Right? And then in 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, He says, so you must remain faithful to what you've been taught from the beginning. Because if you do, you will remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life he promised us. Again, how do we enjoy eternal life? In fellowship with God. Again, it's about a relationship, right? It is not about a religion. It is not about doing the right things, right? It is about being in an ongoing relationship with God. And you see how John defines salvation, right? Not as a list of do's and don'ts. Not as a religion of religious affiliation, right? But with a, of, as, as a relationship with God, period. Again, that's the other thing that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion, is that it's not a religion at all. It is a relationship with God. Right? And, and again, John warns his church in this letter, don't lose what you have. Don't wander from it. Because the reality is that we could end up worshiping all kinds of things other than Christ. Right? And we can't wander from what we've been taught from the beginning. It's all about Jesus, and it's about that relationship with him, and about walking with him every day. Hey, because the reality, again, you can worship all kinds of things other than Christ. You can worship a person, you can worship a church, you can worship a tradition, an idea, a religious organization. There's lots of things you can worship. Don't worship anything other than Jesus. Don't wander from what you've received. That's action step number one. And then then he moves into action step number two in verses 10 through 11. And action step number two is don't support an antichrist. Don't support an antichrist. Now, again, obviously, we got to start with that. We have to define who an antichrist is. We need to be able to see that, right? Again, we see we are, we are not unaware of his schemes, right? I mean, he's, he has shown us that. He says, don't support an antichrist. Now, when we first read this action step, right, these verses can be tough because they seem to go against the teachings of Jesus, when Jesus tells us to be loving to all people and invite everybody in, right? in fact, it's one of the core values of the gospel, right, is that everyone's welcome. And yet here he tells us, but, then, but shun these people. Right? So this, this, again, can be a little hard to, to swallow. It's like, is, is that really what he, yeah, that's exactly what he says, right? That's what he means. 
Again, we start with Matthew 12, 30, where Jesus says, anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Right? I mean, again, the words of Jesus. Right? They say, hey, there are some that are with me, that's great, but if they're not with me, they're not with me. There is no gray area. Right? They're either a follower of Jesus or they are an antichrist. They are anything, again, anti-Christ. They're either for me or they're not. Yet Jesus draws a hard line. Again, the reality, right, is that, that even this command by John is telling us not to shun everyone, right? That's not what he's telling us to do. Right? He's telling us to shun those that are specifically false teachers. In fact, Jesus um, commands us to show kindness towards sinners and to love our enemies. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 43 and 45, he says, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who, who persecute you, and in that way you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives the sunlight on both evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and unjust alike. Again, he's saying, again, who does God love? Everyone. Who should we love? Even our enemies. He's saying, don't shun your enemies. In fact, we see, though, later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 15, and 16, when, it, when Jesus, again, says, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Now, again, Jesus is telling us to shun them. First, identify them, right, and then have nothing to do with them with false teachers, right? Not, not unbelievers, with false teachers. Again, Titus, another New Testament author, okay, in, three, in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, he says, if people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning, and after that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth, and their own sins condemn them. Again, we, as the church, are supposed to be all-inclusive, until they go against the truth. And then we're supposed to stand firm. And again, what, what do we stand firm against? Who is Jesus? Right? If they go against who Jesus is, then we are supposed to, supposed to push back. Again, what causes division? Turning away from the truth. And this all still boils down to the same thing. The whole point of this letter how do you define Jesus as the Christ? Again, we, that's why for our church, right, our core value number one is that Jesus Christ is the destination of our journey, right? Because it all comes down to who we believe Jesus is. And he is the destination of our faith to be more like Christ tomorrow than we are today. In fact, when you look at, again, our old Church of God ministries and our, our Church of God Association of Churches, right, the, the vision of our national movement, is that Jesus is the subject. Because he is the subject. It all comes down to who we define Jesus is. Again, every world religion can be defined clearly by how they view and define Jesus. Okay, which leads us then to the conclusion. Okay, so what do I do with this? I have these action steps. I see that it's all about who Jesus is, about accepting him as my savior. And so here's as we move forward with this, is to say, to truly move forward in your faith journey, truth and love always need to be connected. 
to truly move forward in your faith, truth and love always need to be connected. We can't forget the truth of who Jesus is about the way we're supposed to live and follow him every day, right? We can't forget how he loves us and how I'm supposed to love others, right? They have to always be deeply connected. As we think about this concept, I want to end today, okay, by by reading another small section of John's writing. Okay, in in the beginning of Revelation, um, Jesus tells a bunch of different churches the things that they're doing right and things that they could improve on. Again, Revelation 2, 2 through 5. It says, I know all the things you do, and I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know that you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered that they are liars, and you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works that you did at first. And if you don't repent, I will come remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Boy, that sounds really familiar to what John wrote in 2 John, doesn't it? Right, this church had identified the Antichrist, right? They, they had resisted the false teachings, but yet they forgot to live out truth and love. And that was where they, where they fell short. Are truth and love deeply connected in your heart? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? And if you have, are you living out truth and love every day? Because if you're not, even if you make the right conclusions about false teachers, about any of these other things, right, is that if you forget to live out faith and love, then we've missed the boat. And, and, I don't want that to be true in my life. I don't want it to be true in your life. I don't want it to be true in our church. Right, that we have to live out our faith. Always know the truth and love are deeply connected. Which brings then to my final thought this morning, and that is this. That truth and love are both defined by Jesus. So how much of Jesus is present and seen by others in your daily life? Do people see Jesus in you? Do people see Jesus in our church? Do people see Jesus in the big C church? I, I hope the answer is always yes. Now, if it's not, that you can, one, start by receiving Christ as your Savior today, if you've never done that. Maybe you need to recommit your life to Jesus today. Right, then do that. But maybe you just need to praise God that the that, that truth and love is, is evident all around. Right? I don't know how you need to respond today, but I encourage you to respond to God today. God, we thank you that your voice is in our life. God, that you are the voice of truth. And God, that we saw truth lived out in love, Lord, through sending your son, dying a cross to save us. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we go today, Lord, we would not just be church members, but God, we would truly be Jesus followers. God, that we would have a deep relationship with you. God, a growing relationship with you. And God, that the world would see your truth through us and through our lives. Us as individuals, us as a church. God, as we go this week, help us to live truth and love in all we do. We praise you. 
Guide us now as we go and as we live out our faith every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.